0: Our passage for today is pointed and powerful, stunning and shocking. These words spoken by Jesus are difficult and demanding, abrupt and offensive, and run counter to our Christian subculture. In fact, you may find yourself pushing back. Let's resist the urge to dilute these demands and allow the full force of them to jar us out of complacent and comfortable Christianity. Welcome to On Mission, the preaching ministry of Edgewood Baptist Church in Rock Island. When we gather together, we meet on 38th Street, and when we're scattered, we strive to live on mission all over the Quad Cities area. We're in a series we're calling Discipleship Matters. Listen to a message called, Love Like Jesus Loves.
1: Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian. He was known for his opposition to the Nazi regime. He was imprisoned in Buchenwald and executed in 1945 for his part in a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Listen to what he wrote in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In our Discipleship Matters series, we've defined a disciple as someone who lovingly follows Jesus, that's just the first part, and intentionally helps others follow him. Two weeks ago, we were challenged to live not according to the ways of the world, but according to the truth of God's word. Last weekend, we established that love for one another is the distinctive mark of a disciple. Our passage for today is pointed. It's powerful. It's stunning, shocking even. These words spoken by Jesus are difficult and demanding. They're abrupt. They're offensive. They run counter to our Christian subculture. In fact, you may find yourself pushing back. Well, let's resist the urge to dilute these demands and allow the full force of them to jar us out of complacent and comfortable Christianity. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God's word, and we're going to read our passage together found in Luke chapter 14. I invite you to read with me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You can have a seat. So God, now would you help us to understand these words correctly and by your Holy Spirit would you apply them to our lives that we might live them out personally, in our families, among our friends, at our workplace, in our neighborhood, on our campuses. We commit these moments now to you. Use them for your glory and to change us in Jesus' name. Amen. We make two observations before diving in. Observation number one, this is an urgent evangelistic passage. So in context, Jesus has just finished telling a parable about the importance of inviting people to his banquet. Well, you'll see it there, verse 23. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. But secondly, this is a very demanding discipleship passage. Jesus gives some conditions to those who are considering following him. Would you observe the word disciple is found at the end of verse 26. He cannot be my disciple. Again, at the end of verse 27, cannot be my disciple. If you fast forward, look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So a disciple's a learner, a follower. It was used to describe someone who was totally committed to a cause or a person. It comes from another word, which means to learn by practice or experience. So much like an apprentice, a disciple's one who emulates the teacher. Uh, Jesus said it this way, Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like His teacher. So Jesus is more interested in having committed followers than he is in drawing a crowd of fickle fans. He wanted quality over quantity. And the main point he is making is while the family is foundational, following Christ must come first. And I see four discipleship demands in this passage. Number one, move from the crowd to the committed core. Look at verse 25. It sets the scene. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them. Jesus often drew big crowds, but he was not interested in being popular. This phrase means many multitudes or great throngs of people. Luke 12.1 gives us a description Just help us see how crushing these kinds of crowds were. We read there where so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. And Jesus, as he looked at the crowd, knew that many of them were following him for selfish and superficial reasons. So in the midst of all the fanfare, Jesus turns to them, which is actually a very dramatic act. It means this, it's the idea of twisting forcefully. So Jesus going this way, he twists forcefully and he looks right into the eyes of those following him. This same word was used to describe how Jesus locked eyes with Peter after Peter denied him three times. We read in Luke 22, 61, and the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And if you remember, that's when Peter left Crying. So what did Jesus want to tell them? Well, he for sure didn't give them a positive meme so they could have their best life now. No, he didn't do that. Look at number two, prioritize faith over family. Well, let's see if we can maybe bring ourselves into this text a bit. How would you respond if you were in that crowd and Jesus pivoted sharply and he looked right at you? looked right into your eyes, and he made this statement. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let me remind you, these are the words of Jesus and they're intended for each one of us, would you observe, it says, if anyone comes to me, it's not just the super spiritual, it's not just the missionaries, no, it's anyone, which means it's every one of us. In his book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman writes this, I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing Well, then it's another kind of religion altogether. The crowd wanted what they thought Jesus would give them, not knowing that following Christ would cost them everything. And so let's allow the demands of discipleship in this passage to shock and rock us. Imagine how offensive this statement would have been to those in a culture where honoring parents was the highest obligation and family was one's greatest joy. By the way, you can't say you have discipleship down just because you hate your brothers or sisters. (laughs) Now, it's important to know a common Jewish view. In the messianic era, in other words, when the Savior, the Messiah were to come, that time was to be preceded by a time time of disharmony in family relationships. With these weighty words, Jesus was announcing he was the Messiah and referencing Micah 7, verse 6, which reads, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now the word for hate means to detest or abhor. Let me be quick to say, Jesus is not saying we're to act in a hateful way toward our families. No, the Bible's clear. We're to honor our parents, Exodus twenty twelve. Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to respect their husbands, Ephesians 5, 33. Dads are not to exasperate their kids, Ephesians 6, 4. Mothers are to love their husbands and children, Titus 2, 4. Grown children are to care for their parents when they're no longer able to do so, First Timothy 5, 8. So our challenge today is to understand this expression... Without minimizing the demands of discipleship. The bottom line is, since there will inevitably be conflict between following Christ and family ties, you and I must prioritize faith over family. The word hate in the Bible often expresses priority and preference, not emotional hatred. A Hebrew idiom, in Hebrew idiom, hate can mean to love less. J. Vernon McGee offers this insight, a believer's love for Christ should be such that by comparison, it looks as if everything else is hatred. Warren Wiersbe offers a similar thought, our love for Christ must be so strong that all other love is like hatred in comparison. The stress here is on the priority of love. Now, we know that that's behind the meaning because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, a parallel passage, Jesus says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So in the world of the Bible, they didn't have lukewarm words for liking someone. They had two choices, love or hate. We see that in Genesis 29, 30 and 31 where it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and in the very next verse, it describes her as being unloved, unloved. So it's clear, Jacob loved Rachel more, so in comparison, Leah was unloved. Jacob did not detest or have any hostility toward her. Now having said that, Let's not minimize the cost to your relationships with family members when you faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And for some of you, your faith has already led to some family feuds. Maybe your parents don't understand your faith. Maybe your spouse doesn't share your spiritual priorities. Maybe your children think you're too fanatical. But one time after Peter mentioned how much they had left in order to follow the Lord, Jesus said these words, Mark 10, 29 and 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. It's interesting he adds, with persecutions. Jesus promised persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. So we're called to love and live for Christ first and foremost, even if our families don't follow him. So whatever you've lost because of Christ, you will receive a hundred times Listen, now in this time, what what will you receive? Brothers, sisters. Hey, I have four sisters. I don't want 100, but, and mothers. So where do you get so many siblings? Where do you get parents in the church? You see, your faith family's meant to be more substantial than the bonds of a physical family relationship. And it doesn't matter if you're here by yourself and some of you are, or you're engaging online alone, or if you're a child or a teenager, if you're single or married, if you're divorced or widowed or an empty nester, we are family. You know, I'm not going to sing that song for you either. So before leaving the theme of faith and family, Kevin DeYoung describes two extremes related to families. This is quite helpful. The first is family as nothing. In this one, it'd be like the family is a straitjacket. A family's like, like messing you up because you're not able to do what you want to do. In this view, kids are just, well, kids are to be seen and not heard or maybe not even seen. Well, let's go to the other extreme. If one extreme is family as nothing, the other extreme is family as everything. I don't have time to develop this, so let me just make one statement. If the sin of parents a generation ago was to ignore their family, today it's to make children our idols. But let me move on to number three, love the Lord more than your life. Here Jesus sits at the very heart of human relationships to make sure that following him comes first, and then he brings it closer to home by challenging all of us to lay aside our personal ambitions, our goals, uh, and our very lives. Well, listen again to what Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew, Levi, demonstrated that. He left his old life when called by Jesus, Luke 5, 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Friends, it's really easy to be a fickle fan of Jesus. It's much more difficult to be a faithful follower. A commitment to Christ is costly, costly. Some time ago, I was talking to a young adult and I had a gospel conversation with him and I was sharing Christ with him and I was urging him to be born again. I was urging him to be saved and I could tell something was holding him back. So I just said, hey, is something holding you back? Immediately, this is how he answered, yes, commitment. And I complimented him. I said, listen, what you're doing is counting the cost. That's important to Do, because becoming a Christian means dying to self and living for the Savior for the rest of your life. You don't just add Jesus to your life like an app on your phone and keep living like you're living. No, he calls us to live for him the rest of our life. Number four, fully surrender to his supremacy. Drop down to verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross... And come after me cannot be my disciple. That word bear means to take up, to raise. Unfortunately, we've romanticized the cross. We've turned it into something we put on our walls or wear around our necks. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But let's remember, the cross was carried by condemned criminals, And it ended with a humiliating and excruciating execution. Everyone knew the person carrying a cross was saying goodbye to everything. And there was no turning back. So according to Jesus, discipleship must involve death to self our independence, our agenda, our expectations. We'll drill more into that next weekend. But speaking of those who are completely committed to Christ, I think of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted and some martyred for their faith, Revelation twelve eleven: for they loved not their lives even unto death. Well, let me ask a question. It's a couple questions. Are you willing... To renounce every person, every possession, and especially yourself in order to follow Christ. Let me ask it this way What is it that's keeping you from following fully? Is it commitment? An unholy habit? An ungodly relationship? You know it's wrong, but you don't want to stop? Is it sinful pleasure? In Pastor Ray's online revelation class this week, and many of us are taking advantage of that, he referenced the church at Ephesus that had abandoned the love that they had at first. And in Revelation 2.5, Jesus challenged them to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, repent, repent repeat. I like how one pastor summarized this passage. Salvation is both absolutely free, uh, and yet it costs you your very life. You receive it freely, no expense to you. But once you receive it, you've just committed everything you are and have to Jesus Christ. The best gift you can give to your family is for you to make your faith And their faith, your top priority. The family's foundational, but following Christ must come first. And the way to enter the family of faith is by receiving what Jesus has done for you on the cross. John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's how you enter God's family who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. So the key is not who you're related to, but whether or not you have repented and received Christ. Determined to follow Jesus as a devoted disciple for the rest of your life. Because when Christ calls you, he bids you to come and die.
0: This is a call to discipleship. So we wanted to tell you about some ways Edgewood can help you take your next step with Jesus. We have about a dozen growth groups that meet on Sunday mornings, including a men's group and a group for women. We have three men's discipleship groups that meet during the week, along with some growth events scheduled for this fall. We also have discipleship opportunities for women, as well as several connecting events coming up. We also have groups for teens and young adults. We also have intentional one-on-one discipleship opportunities. Let's close with an excerpt from a book by Mark Buchanan called Your Church is Too Safe. Historian Daniel Borstein documents a momentous shift that occurred in North America in the 19th century. We stopped calling people who went on trips travelers and started calling them tourists. Traveler literally means one who travails. He labors, suffers, endures. To get there, he immerses himself in a culture, learns the language and customs, lives with the locals, imitates the dress, eats what's set before him. He takes risks, some enormous, and makes sacrifices, some extravagant. He has tight scrapes and narrow escapes. He is gone for a long time. If he ever returns, he returns forever altered. A tourist, not so. Tourist means literally one who goes in circles, He's only passing through, sampling wares, acquiring souvenirs. He retreats each night to what's safe and familiar. He picks up a word here, a phrase there, but the language and the world it's embedded in remains opaque and cryptic and vaguely menacing. He spectates and consumes. He returns to where he's come from with an album full of photos, a few mementos, a cheap hat. He's happy to be back. He declares, there's no place like home. We've made a similar shift in the church. At some point, we stopped calling Christians disciples and started calling them believers. A disciple is one who follows and imitates Jesus. She loses her life in order to find it. She steeps in the language and culture of Christ until his word and his world reshapes hers. A believer, not so. She holds certain beliefs, but how deep down these go depends on the weather or her mood. You can't be a disciple without being a believer. But here's the rub you can be a believer and not a disciple. You can say all the right things, think all the right things, believe all the right things, do all the right things, and still not follow and imitate Jesus. The kingdom of God is made up of travelers, but our churches are largely populated with tourists. The kingdom is full of disciples, but our churches are filled with believers. Are you a tourist or a traveler? Thanks for joining us for On Mission. If you'd like to hear more sermons like this one or wanna learn more about the ministry of Edgewood, go to edgewoodbaptist.net or download our free mobile app on the Apple App Store or Google Play by searching for Edgewood QC. We'd love to have you as a guest at one of our three weekend services, Saturday at five or Sunday at nine or 1045. My name is Matt Williams and I'm a member of Edgewood. Ethan Curry, also an Edgewood member, is serving as the producer of this program. We look forward to connecting with you again next weekend as we learn more about how to live on mission. Until then, go deep in God's word and keep applying it to your world. On Mission is furnished by Edgewood Baptist in Rock Island, Illinois.